The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Now my job is to explain the handout. <laughs> the upper half of the page talks about typical roles that you find among the characters in stories. Now it isn't as if that a, a single story contains a single character with a single role. Rather, their characters as they go through can play more than one role, but at any one point in the story, they are playing a certain kind of role. And the role labels are the things in the center of that diagram, are things like challenger, guarantee, challengee, testee, tester, all those, okay? And not only are there these roles, but then there are the events that move the plot forward. And the events are given in the bottom half of the page. The events are challenges, tests, and recompenses. And I, you know, if you want to know the ultimate background of this, I think it's prophet, king, and priest, <laughs> whether you believe that or not. Uh, but there are events that are more verbal events, basically, where the, the heart of the event is a communication of one thing or another. Those are the challenges. And in, all these involve two characters interacting with one another, incidentally. Then there are power events where, the, in effect, instead of the prophetic, the verbal, it's the kingly, it's the execution of power. And those are tests. And then there are priestly events, that is a blessing or a curse of recompense. And uh, the, uh, the labels for the roles depend on what kind of event it is. Okay, so you can see in the top half, I've got one, two, three at the left-hand side representing these three types of events, the challenge type events, the power type event, and the sanction or blessing or curse type of event. And the central characters, look at the bottom half of the page now. The challenger is the central character in a challenge type of event. A challenger issues an order. It may not be literally an order, it may be a suggestion, depending. All right, to the challengee against the background of the challenger has to make some kind of judgment about the challengee, right? So that's usually implicit. The main thing you usually see is the issuing of the, of the challenge and then the acceptance or refusal of that. Now you can deal with that, for instance, with the temptation narrative. Christ is the challengee. Now, you know, sometimes he'll be the challenger who will confront people with, he's the challengee and the devil comes and issues challenges, turn this stone into bread, right? And then he, in this case, he refuses three times, right? So the action never gets going in a sense, although it's, it's 
I don't want to diminish the importance of the temptation, but in fact, the, the challenge is refused three times. Uh, uh, take another kind of event. For instance, the, uh, the uh, healing of the centurion slave. It's the centurion who issues the challenge to Jesus, please come and heal me. You see, that's the request, right? Then he accepts, he's on his way, there's more communication. Now when he gets there, well he doesn't ever get there, right? He just issues a word, which is, looks like another event, but it's essentially a power event, right? That he actually heals him. So a miracle story, the central act in a miracle story is going to be this act of confrontation, of exercise of power. But at the same time, it's woven together with the blessing of the person on whom the miracle is worked. So now, you know, how do I separate between, at that point, a test and a recompense? Well, the testing events often are testing in a struggle to overcome. And uh, so Jesus' miracle stories in that respect are closer to being simply recompense, right? There's not a decisive test. Although sometimes, for instance, the healing of, the, um, of Jairus' daughter, the test is the test of his faith, okay? Because there's this delay, and then you hear that the daughter is already dead. At that point, what, what are the roles? Jesus is the tester, Jairus is the testee, right? And there's a struggle, uh, although it's partly, you might say, in, uh, it's not so much Jesus who is testing him, but it's his own unbelief. <laughs> so the possibilities are not only human cate categories, but sometimes abstractions can play the role of these, um, these uh, personages. All this comes out of, typically, a fairy tale structure where, you know, you get the situation of the dragon raids the kingdom and carries off the princess to his lair, okay? Well, that's an initial disruption of the norm, which is, uh, I handle that in another way. I'm not going to get into that. But then there's a challenge issued, who will go to rescue the princess, right? And the challenger may be some, uh, some third party or it may be the king himself. And then the, the, uh, the hero accepts the challenge, right? And at that point, then he goes through various tests along the way and finally confronts the dragon, defeats it. Well, that's the decisive, that's the final test. And then the recompense is they get married. <laughs> Typically, but you can see, you can see this kind of, you know, where Vladimir Prop was able to get some of his ideas because there is, you know, I can kind of evoke certain things, at least if you've heard fairy tales growing up, you evoke certain things and you say, yeah, you know, I can see, I can see that plot. And actually, it's often still to this day, to a certain extent, the plot of some of the movies we see. You know, oh, there's variations on it. Yeah. What? What's the cash value? Why do this? It's because, I think, in the end, this disruption that I talk about, the ultimate disruption is the fall. And the story of redemption, basically, writ large, is the story of 
the Son of God coming and undergoing the test and then being recompensed and, of course, his people being recompensed with him. So the gigantic, the macro structure of redemption is a story of that kind. And at least the, the fantasy literature in the West has been heavily influenced, I think, through the fairy tale literature, has been heavily influenced by the story of redemption. And, um, and now, now that means that the micro stories, the individual incidents in the gospel, are likely to be stories of redemption written small. And the value of this kind of category is partly so you think about possible correspondences between the micro story, the healing of the leper, say, and the macro story of redemption. But it's also, my wife and I have had fun looking at films and stories in the Western world through these lenses. And the, you, if you haven't seen it in a while, you ought to see the old Walt Disney um, animation of Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> because the, the princess is, is uh, growing up Right, that corresponds to the church. I mean, I'm going to allegorize this. Right, an evil witch comes and, curse, and, and introduces a curse, and there is a moment of temptation where the princess touches the spindle, she falls into sleep. That's a sleep of spiritual death. She's asleep, the whole palace is asleep, and has got to be rescued out of spiritual death. And then this prince fellow is commissioned to do it. He's commissioned by these, these uh, angelic agents, essentially, basically. And in the Disney form of it, they give him special weaponry of it's the sword of truth and the, and the shield of righteousness or something like that. You think, where is that coming from? And then he, he, he takes off, he's going toward the palace, and the witch causes thorns to grow up. Well, basically, you know, that's again, it's the, it's the, it's the thorns and thistles of the fall as obstacles, and he cuts through all those, and then the witch says, now, and this is the exact quote, now you will have to deal with all the powers of hell. And she transforms herself into a dragon. And then he has to confront Satan, basically, is what is the picture is. And he kills the dragon, and what you see at the end, when the dragon is sort of dissolves, is the sword stuck into the ground, forming a shadow of a cross. I mean, this, <laughs> it's, it's uncanny. And it may, I don't know what the Disney animators, how much they were aware of, of what they were doing. But it was written in a culture which had, you know, Christian motifs, and they just incorporated those things. But, and then, you know, what, what happens after he's defeated the dragon, then he marries the princess. She wakes up, she's regenerated in effect, and she becomes the bride of the lamb. So it's just, <laughs> it's a story of redemption. And that is largely why it works, why it such, has such a powerful appeal. We are longing, you know, and even unbelievers are longing for a solution, you know, an answer. And, uh, and there's another thing, there was a, Thing, when Spielberg did E.T., there were things there that were Christian motifs that were pointed out to him afterward, and he's a Jew. They were pointed out to him afterward, and he said, I wasn't thinking of it, but yeah, that's there. 
It's the, same, it's the fact is, just in the longing for and the sort of groping after redemption, people come up with these things. But um, anyway, so it's interesting to look for, I think, even beyond the realm of Scripture, but certainly within Scripture, uh, that the, uh, the overall story of redemption is written small many, many times, I think, in these... Uh, individual stories, not only in the Gospels, but I think you can apply this with respect to the Old Testament as well. So um, that is, uh, is something to be looking for. Now, uh, let me say a bit more about the categories. Okay, so the challenge, I've illustrated that, the test, uh, when the prince confronts the dragon, right, she appears in all her wickedness, they struggle, they fight, and then there's either victory or defeat. And, and, and that, those categories explain themselves pretty well. The recompense, it takes place by means of a recompenser. Now, that always, sometimes it's just the situation. It's the sort of hand of God's providence. But sometimes, for instance, in a fairy story, it's the king who gives the princess to the victorious hero in marriage. So the king would be the recompenser, the prince would be the recompensee, whose works then are evaluated, you see, then there's the issuing of the reward or punishment in the case, I mean, you can apply this dual sanctions thing, right? There's the issuance of the reward and its reception by the recompensee. I think that the Satan's temptations of Christ uh, are our mandate and refusal over and over again three times. Because if you say, how would that act out, right? If, as would be impossible, but if Christ had accepted the temptation, then he would have engaged in a test where he undertook to change the stone into bread, you see. And if he succeeded, his recompense would be to eat it. So the Satan is setting up a solar counterfeit redemption story, in effect, you see, which the initial acceptance of the challenge would then, you know, push Christ into following through a whole a, a micro story, which would be a counterfeit redemption. But it aborts because the challenge is refused at the beginning. Though most of the stories in the Gospels go further because generally speaking there's not much of a story if the challenge usually the thing goes challenge test recompense in that order you see there's a kind of logic of it right because the challenge is ultimately a challenge that will issue in trials uh, which will be rewarded or punished so there's a certain logic there but if the challenge is not accepted then there's no story and then the temptation is a is a unique counterexample to that uh, because uh, it's at the same time it's kind of a defeat of Satan, right? So you could say it's also a test and the, the trouble is these categories are not rigid, right? You can use them as perspectives and say it's a test which Christ succeeds in, but then you have to look at it as a test from God, right? So that's a little bit different. So. But I think you're seeing the fuzziness in the categories at that point. But I think if you read the story on, a, as it were, um, closer to a surface level, 
what are the roles of the particular individuals. Typically stories all over the world, most of the time, stories proceed with two people at any one time are the ones who are interacting with one another. Those two people, one of them may be a group that's undifferentiated, but it's the group as a whole that's reacting to the individual. And then you watch how they interact and say, what kind of interaction are they having? Is it more like a challenge interaction or a test interaction or a recompense interaction? And uh, you proceed through the story. But as I say, the roles will shift, all right? Any one character, in a, if it's a complicated story, the character may be in turn challenger, tester, testee, recompensee, recompenser, you know, and they may sort of go around through several um, levels. Let me say a bit about the, uh, the roles as they are listed at the top half of the material. The sphere of action in a challenge is planning and communication. A challenge is fundamentally a plan that's proposed, you see. And the challenger is the one who issues this plan. And the challenger can be either a good guy or a bad guy. That is, if he's a good guy, you call him a dispatcher. That's prop's word, actually. If he's a bad guy, he's a tempter or a deceiver. So the, the, the challenges have to be evaluated, you see, right, morally speaking. And then the challenger can go directly to the challengee through a direct act of communication, but sometimes through what you might call props, that is, subpersonal articles or events. And those would be omens in this case, all right? Either, you know, something that's communicated to the person, that's given to the person, is a concrete object as a guarantee or as a threat or you know even an event in the sky that is the means through which the challenge is brought home to the challengee. Okay, what about the area of power and execution? The tester, the testee is the one whose metal is being shown and the one whom the spotlight is on, typically. And the tester is the one who puts him through his paces. Now, the tester can be either a good guy or a bad guy. Again, a donor is prop's term, or a villain is, again, prop's term. A donor, well, a villain, you understand. A villain is somebody like this wicked witch in the uh, Sleeping Beauty who is just trying to destroy a person. A donor is somebody who tests the metal of the person, usually in order to see whether he's qualified to receive a gift, some gift that will help him later on. Um, and when Jesus interacts with his disciples, it's sometimes on that basis, all right, of testing them. And a facilitator is then, again, an intermediary that can be a prop, can be a subpersonal thing, as well as uh, a personal. A helper or an opponent, again, can be bad or a good guy. But a villain, you see, may have, um, what should I say, may, may have people on his side who are further opponents, 
who are sidekicks. And similarly, the donor may have helpers through whom he works. And finally, the area of sanction and impartation. Uh, again, that can be positive or negative. The recompenser can either give out a reward or give out a punishment, in which case it's positive or negative. Now, that positive and negative, in this case, is not a moral evaluation, right? A recompenser can punish somebody righteously, but it's the kind of, it's the kind of relationship that he's displaying to the recompensee. Is it positive or negative relationship? Right? And the recompense itself is the intermediary thing that's transferred, either reward or punishment. So on the level of the event, you have the agent, you have the instrument of the uh, action, and you have the experiencer or the patient or the benefact, the, the benefactee, the one who receives a benefit. Uh, so in effect, those, um, the categories are very general too general in many respects. But what I'm uh, encouraging you to do is think about these interactions, even in detail, to ask how are they similar to other things in the Gospels and even outside the Gospels and in the Old Testament. And having some general categories, the trouble is the thing can be pushed and, and create relationships which are, the categories are so are uh, so general that the relations are sometimes tenuous. In other words, just because the fact that two people both play a tester-type role doesn't show very much similarity between them, right? So, but it's still something to get one going in thinking about how do stories develop. And typically, there is a commonness to stories. In fact, again, this is going back to modern films that that my wife and I have sometimes said to ourselves, there is only one story. <laughs> because people are playing in one way or another, even if in counterfeit ways, they're playing on the story of redemption. Okay, without much done, five minutes. <laughs> um, Luke 8:29 to 38 Luke 8:26 to 39 Well, what do we do with something like this? They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tomb. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many a time it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Well, in, in our context, and if you think about preaching this, there's already somewhat of a problem because people wonder about demon possession. Are there demon-possessed people today? Have you met one, even? You know, there's this fascination, I think, among some. And, of course, there are two dangers lying behind that. Uh, there are people who will see demons everywhere in sort of Manichaean direction, or nowhere in a more liberal direction. But the difficulty of this passage that already confronts us right away is that it doesn't directly answer that question. It's about, first of all, about a once-for-all event. And yet, 
Are we going to say it's just then located back there? Jay Adams took the opinion that there was a sort of unique cropping out of demon possession in the Gospels that's not to be found uh, before or since. And certainly it's, it's an unusual kind of thing because of the kingdom of God perhaps provoking unusual reaction. Yet we want to struggle with, well, in what way is this applicable today? Is it just to prove that Jesus has authority? Now, the introductory verses that I've just read already raise questions because they are so detailed, right? There's a more detailed picture of this man's plight than in many cases. And as I already hinted to you earlier, I think one of the things that is coming up is the issue of, is this man still in the image of God? Because he's been bestialized in many ways. He acts almost like an animal. And in verse 28, it's, it's in some respects worse than a beast because he's alienated from God to such an extent that he just, or at least the demons in him, and that's part of the problem, right? Whose voice? <laughs> Uh, and, and partly, you know, is the integrity, is the unity of human personality any longer clear? It isn't, because there are these voices. Uh, verse 31, they begged him. Let's see. So who is Jesus talking to? Is he talking to a unified human personality or not? And you see, that, that itself is in rather pitiful state. It's uh, so he's uh, he's. If we speak of he, he is alienated from God from the standpoint to regard Jesus as a tormentor. He has the the violence of a wild animal. He's breaking the bonds that he's um, fettered with. And in verse 30, with this legion, and they begging him, moderns would say he's a mental case, by which I don't mean to suggest that all modern cases that the psychologists classify as mental are necessarily demonic. But indirectly, of course, the effects of disintegration of human personality and the dysfunction of the human personality are effects of the fall. So at some deep level, you can probably see that they are related to this extreme and in some ways um, uh, profoundly disturbing case. Well, our bell rang. We're going to have to leave the man in midstream until next time. What I think I will do, I, I left off in the middle of uh, discussing the, the Gadarene demoniac as an example of a miracle story. But uh, I'm just going to sketch out some of the other things and then we'll deal with, uh, go back to the, analyzing the plot structure. Uh, the, the piece that I didn't uh, include, we talked about the, the man as sort of his humanity being attacked because he's acting like a beast in many ways. Um, not much time is spent on the healing itself in comparison with 
the description beforehand of what he's like, and then, if you think about it, the description afterwards uh, that the, the herd rushes down the bank into the uh, sea, and then the uh, herdsmen go and tell it, and the people are afraid. So there is need to reflect on the dangerousness of what's happened from the standpoint of the townspeople. And it's a little hard, I think, to understand, well, why are they reacting like this? You'd think they'd give us more because this man has been delivered. But they seem to be afraid that Jesus will disrupt their lives as he's disrupted the lives of the herdsmen. I mean, where's your, where's your livelihood now? It's just gone down into the, uh, the sea. So that may be it. I'm not sure. Uh, but... Uh, what happens is also got a particular appropriateness, I think, because the demons ask not to be sent down to, the, to their final place of confinement. What he does is have to allow them to go into the pigs, and the pigs rush down into the abyss, not literally the abyss of final confinement, but something that is symbolical of that. So I think there are overtones beyond the, just the bare events of what happened, that this is kind of picture, not only of Jesus' power over the demonic, but of their fate in the end. But then if you push forward to the crucifixion and the resurrection, you find that Satan is still operative and that the elders and the chief priests are in their way more deeply in his control than is this demoniac. It's not the same thing, but it leads you to reflect, I think, on the, the character of the corruption of human nature that has taken place even among religious people. And Christ confronts them, and he triumphs over the demonic, and he triumphs over wickedness and over injustice, but he triumphs in what way? Through his own crucifixion by himself going down to the abyss, as it were. And this, you see this picture of the abyss is partly the underworld, but it's the grave, it's death. There's all kinds of associations. So I don't think it's irrelevant to connect it with Christ's own suffering and his identification with the plight of the demoniac in order that the demoniac may be delivered. In other words, he goes to hell that we may be delivered. Now, you know, I don't want to get into the line in the Apostles' Creed, he ascended into hell, descended into hell, which, you know, there's not really, I think, scriptural warrant for, you know, inferring that in a literal sense. But the sufferings of penalty of sin, that is part of it. And when he is restored then to the image of God in the full sense in his resurrection, then he is in a position to restore us. So you can reflect on the larger issues, and you see what I'm doing is to, to, to take individual pieces of the Gospels and then to view them as sort of windows through which we see the great work of Christ. Now, Cookson, even with his passage, began to do it, especially as it challenged you to think through the crucifixion and the resurrection, how the Gentile Jew problem is addressed in its most ultimate form by Jesus' deliverance. Okay, with that much said, I'm going to go on. to deal with a handout which I passed out a long time ago. Do you remember this thing? It says, common rhetorical subdivisions in a narrative episode. It has this list of, of uh, labels, which you must not have forgotten because Cook Zinn referred to complication in his analysis. But 
what I would like to do is, if you can somehow find that in your own your uh, files here, I would like to work through uh, to show you how one might analyze uh, individual pericopes. And the first such one uh, is going to be Luke six six to eleven. Now, you already have that analyzed, but suppose you didn't have the product. It would look like this is going on. Here we go. Now, what you have has already got the analysis there. And you can see one thing that doesn't fit with these categories, the and relationship. I can use things out of the hermeneutics course, propositional relations there. It's simply this kind of thing for narrative is a supplement to that. The and relation is one of those relations, propositional relations from the hermeneutics course. I can supplement that with these uh, other labels uh, as I'm dealing with the, the uh, uh, rise and fall of tension in plot. I also bring to bear um, the material you have on the back side of these uh, of the page saying common rhetorical subdivisions in narrative episode. And I can't show you that on the overhead, but it, it's the back side of it says distinctive features for identifying paragraph boundaries. You see that? And there's part for letters and there's part for narrative. Shifts of time, shifts of place, againito, change of actors are all things that at least get you a beginning of this. Now that helps to discern where the boundaries are within a particular episode. So what I'm going to do is go through this, read through it, and break it up into bite-sized chunks, if you will. Usually there'll be a, a single proposition, but actually I didn't do that. I mean, there's so, those of you who took hermeneutics may remember that I basically say one verb one proposition. Now here you've got two verbs, but the agenito is kind of, and it came to pass, that really is introducing this. Uh, and here's another verb. Now, rather than take each of these separately, I've gone not by proposition mostly, but by sentence. So, it came to pass on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. What is that? Well, there's action here, but for my purposes, I allow as part of the setting getting people on the scene. All right, so entering a town or entering the synagogue counts as part of the setting. And the teaching is another action, but in this particular context, really, it's setting the stage. He was teaching, you could almost translate it, as a present infinitive. All right, now I break there because that's the end of the sentence, for one thing. But in addition, you shift to another actor. A man was there and his right hand was withered, okay? Those are the two pieces, both of which are setting. Now, there's, this becomes a little tricky. Jesus was teaching. And a man with his hand is there. 
and I can write out a summary here. And this is a little tricky because you can't, could argue this is already the occasioning incident. If there's somebody sick, it's an occasion for Jesus to heal the person. And after you've been going through, reading through the Gospels for a while, you sort of get used to that, right? You begin looking for it. But I think the way this is set up rhetorically, it's introduced basically in a, an imperfect tense there. It's not an action. It's a state. The man's there. So I think even though alert readers are going to sense, yeah, probably something's going to come with this, I would rather delay and talk about a particular incident, something not just that's there in the background and that happens to be mentioned, but a particular incident, a particular event that gets uh, the uh, tension actually going. And right now, here it is. We're watching him, the scribes and the Pharisees, whether, now here's a subordinate clause, so you could analyze this, right? You could analyze, I'm going to show you how you would do it. Analyze it into three parts. They were watching him concerning this, whether he would eat on the Sabbath, in order that they might find something to accuse him, right? So you've got two verbs here, and you could break that up, but obviously these are going to be linked right away back together. They would find a way to accuse him, right? So this is probably, I would describe this as a complement relationship. What the find, they've got to find something, and here's what they find, okay? So this uh, find an accusation. Okay, and they're watching him about this. These two things link, again, as a complement relationship. Watch for healing, right? What are they watching for? That. Oh, no, they're watching him, which is complete, right? But this defines it more specifically, so that's still okay. This is the main proposition. And this is a Hina relationship here. So you've got purpose right there, okay? They um, are watching for a misstep, basically, is the main thing. Now, I haven't done that, all of that, on your sheet. That just shows how you might analyze the details. But the interesting things many times are on really the sentence level and above, okay? So what do we get? Oh, and by the way, you see here, this is one whole sentence that ends at the end of verse 7, and it's another actor. The actors, the distinct actors, tend to break the narrative up into the pieces as, a, as one of those criteria observed, all right? So here we have, this is going to be the setting, okay? Now, what's happening here, there's already tension, right? Because they're trying to find something to, to uh, some misstep. So this is the occasioning incident. Introduces the tension explicitly. But he, emphatic. So you want to notice all these little things as much as possible. He knew their thoughts. 
and he said to the man, right? So now we've got the actor is Jesus all the way through here, right? He knew their thoughts. He said to the man who had the withered hand, rise and stand in the middle, and he stood. Now here's another actor, right? So even though this is part of the same verse, I break it off. Okay, so Jesus knew this, and then in close connection with that, as a response to his knowledge, undoubtedly he says, gives this command, right? So this is there, and then he rose. And this is a frequent thing you find in narrative. These two things going together as, what do I call it? It's command and execution. And I got that at the bottom of my, yeah, proposal is a little <laughs> uh, broader than command. Proposal and execution. Obviously, it's a regular thing in the narrative, right? Somebody says do this and somebody else does it. That's, that's an instance. Uh, I should relabel this proposal, all right? Then this is an instance of that, right? Jesus says do this and he does it. Now what's happening, the, because you'll frequently find instances of this kind of thing, the two parts are closely related. So frequently they will be linked together and what basically Jesus has the man Stand. Now, what is the effect of this in terms of the tension? The effect definitely is complication. Because you can say, okay, the man has got a withered hand. He's there. He's being watched. Jesus could just ignore him. He doesn't ignore him. He calls him right out in front, which is on the way to making an issue out of this. Okay? So that's definitely complication. Jesus said... Now it's back. Jesus is again the actor, right? Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? All right, so that's all a speech. Obviously goes together. All right, so all that goes together. Now, what about this? How does this function? Complication two. Why? Because not only has the guy right out in front, but now theologically, makes an explicit issue out of whether this man is going to be healed and whether it's lawful for Jesus to heal him. And looking around on them all, he said to him, this is still Jesus is the actor, right? no change of actor, but he is addressed here, his focus is on responding to these uh, religious leaders, now he's turned to interact with a man. So I didn't include it on this list, but even the shift, even if it's the same actor, a shift to interact with somebody else is a bit of a break often. All right, so he looks around on them all. There he's still interacting, but then he shifts his attention to the man. He said, stretch out your hand. Now the man can't stretch it out. It's non-functional. So this already puts Jesus on the spot. This part here is climax. What if the man did nothing? Jesus would not only be humiliated, but he'd be discredited. So there's tension. And he did so, and his hand was restored. So now shift of actor, this is the resolution, right? The man has got his problem dealt with. Resolution such as it will be. Now all these things will link together, right, into one. 
episode. But they, emphatic, right? They were filled with annoyance, or worse, and were discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is what I call an additional incident. Whatever resolution there has been has already been achieved, right? So what you've got here is something that, strictly speaking, was not necessary to, to complete the narration. Well, the man's problem has been dealt with. The Pharisee's problem has not been dealt with, right? But, of course, it's not going to be resolved, and that's part of the point of how this one episode is linked into the entire narrative. And what I've told you before is frequently additional incidents, because they're additional, they're not needed just to, to complete a story, they are significant. Why are they there when they're not needed uh, for, from the standpoint of the plot? Well, this is part of the larger plot, not of the plot of this episode so much as the plot of the uh, gospel as a whole. So you can see it's important. What about the resolution? Well, this vindicates Jesus theologically, and you can see how Basically, the theological concerns that have been raised earlier uh, are wrapped up uh, in the, the resolution. Okay, well, that's uh, that one I use from time to time, partly because it's fairly easy. <laughs> Let's try one more. Um, you have this, Matthew 13, you have somewhere in the handout. Can you find it? Okay, so here we go. Another parable, he, parethetan, that's interesting, he set before them, saying, okay, now, if you were to analyze this in terms of my hermeneutics course, this would be, basically a quotation margin, you would say it introduces this entire thing. So you could you know, link it as a complement relation because it's basically the, the saying, the object of the verb saying is this entire thing. But we're going to more or less ignore that and look at the structure of the parable inside that quotation, right? The kingdom of heaven is, was like a man sowing good seed in his field. Oh, is this one? Wait a minute. One of you, is one of you doing this next week? No. Yeah, all right. You're going to get some clues. All right. I don't want to do one that you're actually going to do. All right. Um, now, what do we do with this? Well, this is actually already action, right? The kingdom of heaven is like, is not yet the story proper. So again, we'd have to break that off. The story proper starts with the action. A man sows seed in his field. It's already in action. This is not setting, right? Something is happening. So what do I do with that? I'd say that's a preliminary incident. I don't have any conflict yet. When I have 
just information about the environment, that's a setting. If it's an actual event, preliminary incident. While he was, while men, that is, while everybody, in effect, was sleeping, uh, his enemy came and sowed Zania, basically these tares, uh, in the midst of the wheat, and went off. All right, so this is all the action of the enemy. I'm going to take that, even though it's more than one sentence, I'm going to take that all as one, and that's already the occasioning incident. He's got problems now in his field. Okay. And the, um, basically the plant sprang up and made fruit. Then the, uh, the tares appeared. Well, these are two different sentences, right? And you can split them up like this. Who's the actor? Well, you could say it's just props, but really the whole story is going to be partly about this plant growth. So the plant becomes virtually an actor in the story. I'd take those two things together. They're two separate things, but they're viewed as parallel, right? And more or less simultaneously, these two things are happening. So you need to link them together like this, probably as simultaneous, and say both the seed and the tares grow, okay? The, the servants coming to the, uh, the master said to him, quote, and now we're going to get how long? Only down to here. Lord, didn't you show good, good seed in your field? Uh, whence then have come these tares? All right, so that all belongs together. Here's, that's a different actor. Here it's going to be the, the master. All right, so we're breaking that off in terms of action. What do you think this is doing? This is not the easiest possible one. But what do you think is happening? Anybody want to volunteer? It's, yeah, yeah, well, those are those categories about the kind of way yeah, but it's complication in terms of our categories, if you look at that sheet. I did use this thing of challenge and uh, for verbal communication, but that's, that is not rhetorical analysis. If you want to know, that's motific analysis. But this, for rhetorical analysis, wait a minute. This thing, oh, I need to label this one too. What do you think that is? This is complication, you're right. Why? Because it's making more pointed that we've got a problem. And uh, this one is already complication, right? Because it's working out. Not only did he sow this, these tears, but now, yeah, they're actually there, right? It's getting worse. This is not getting it much worse, but it's posing the problem to the landowner so that now he's aware of it. And so the tension is rising because of what question, what will he do? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servants say to him, do you want us to go out and gather them, that is, the tares? Now, what do I do with this? I think, yeah, I've got this on my own answer sheet as well. I too, conclu I too soon stopped with 27. 
because what this is, see, let me erase this and show you something better. I can't get it off very well. But what this is, these two things, you've got a question here and an answer, right? And again, that's a common thing in narrative. You take those together, and together they're the complication. Okay? Then the servants have a proposal to go out and gather them, right? Question. And then answer, no. Lest gathering the tares, you uproot together with them the grain. All right? So again, you got question and answer here, right? This is complication because you're beginning to see there isn't a simple solution to this problem. Okay, then let grow together, both of them, until the harvest. And, now this is continuing the speech, but basically the ooh is the answer, right? And now this is continuing with another proposal. So even though it's the same um, person doing it, This needs to be treated separately, all right? So let them both go to, the, go to the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the harvesters, gather first the tares and uh, bind them into bundles uh, to, be bur to burn them, and the grain gather into my, um, into my apotheking. It's a place where you put the stuff, right? Uh, it would be, could be a barn, but could be a, a rack of some kind, a storehouse. What do we do with that? The story, in a certain sense, is not over. You've still got to have, I mean, he's just said what to do, and you've still got to have the servants do it. But this seems to me to already present a resolution. He's got an idea and the rest is history, as you say. It's already proposing the resolution, and I think that's why the story can end at this point. You don't feel unsatisfied, right, because the rest of the story is perfectly predictable. Now, this is a little trickier, though, because, it, because the story resolves in a speech rather than in the actual action. So we could say, well, we could treat this. You could, see, you could say, that this is part one of the resolution. I'm going to have to reconsider here, right, that this is the climax because it seems to be impossible, right? And because the thing gets resolved here. But you can say it's only part one, and that part two would be carrying it out. Right? That's what you'd expect if the story were thorough. But you hardly need that because it's inferable from the other. So my point in bringing up this example is partly to show you, and some of these things are even more complicated, that stories don't develop uniformly. I mean, there are things that you have to adjust to 
and ask yourself, why doesn't Jesus care to carry on the story from here? And it may be not only that you don't want to extend a story beyond where you've made the point, as it were, but also this effect that, in fact, um, Israel is in actual history about where the story is at this point. Namely, God, I mean, because it's obviously, you know, parallel to the kingdom of heaven, God has already determined in his counsel that good and evil people are going to grow together within his kingdom until the final harvest of the second coming. He's determined it, but the harvest has not yet come. So the story sort of leaves you with the plan for the harvest, but doesn't actually carry out the harvest. So it's, you know, it depends on how you look at it, whether you can say this is a complete story or not.